This is 100 Days of Dante, a podcast journey through Dante's divine comedy, one canto at a time. Join us online at 100daysofdante.com. Let's read together. We've arrived at Canto 30 of Inferno, still in Circle 8, Bolgia 10. We may be getting close to the bottom of hell, but Dante the Pilgrim still has much to learn. In this canto, he has a moment of profound realization about his own sinful tendencies, and he recognizes that he still has a way to go on his pilgrimage. This canto continues Dante's time with the falsifiers that began in Canto 29. We've seen that they are afflicted with all manner of disease, including a never-ending itch. In particular, the falsifiers of Canto 29 are the alchemists, falsifiers of nature because they pretend to turn base metals into gold. In fact, Canto 29 ends with Capocchio, an alchemist speaking to Dante and Virgil. But rather than continuing that action, Dante instead begins Canto 30 in a very high style with two heart-wrenching stories from the classical poet Ovid. Two terrible stories about parents, Athamas in Thebes and Hecuba in Troy, who have been driven to madness by incredible suffering. In both cases, their families have been destroyed. Their children are dead. Now, sometimes this section is seen as a shout out to Ovid. But I wonder, especially because of what happens at the end of the canto, if it might be equally true to see the use of Ovid as part of the theme of one-upmanship that emerges in this canto. You'll remember back in Canto 4 that Dante has ranked himself as a poet alongside Homer, Horace, Lucan, Virgil, and yes, Ovid. He clearly rates his poetic gifts quite highly, even as his encounter with Paolo and Francesca and their book in Canto V has begun to niggle him a little bit. And Sir Brunetto's claim of immortality through literature in Canto XV begins to ring a little hollow after witnessing Brunetto's fate on the arid plain. Still, Canto 30 begins with 21 lines of Ovidian horror, and then Dante breaks in at line 22, basically claiming he can out Ovid Ovid. In other words, as horrifying as Ovid's stories are, his canto is going to hold far worse. But as importantly, in a canto about the difference between reality and appearance, between the difference between truth and lies, there is also the key reminder here that the reality of sin is worse than even the worst imaginings. But as importantly, in a canto about the difference between reality and appearance, about the difference between truth and lies, there is also the key reminder here that the reality of sin is worse than even the worst imaginings. And the things described here are pretty grim. When Dante tries to pick up the conversation that concluded Canto 29, Capocchio can't even continue before two sinners come charging at them, white with rage and naked. Compared to rampaging pigs, these sinners, like Athamas and Hecuba, seem to have lost their minds, and violently so. These two rampaging sinners are a new kind of falsifier, people who impersonated others in order to accomplish their nefarious purposes. Gianni Schicchi impersonated his friend's dead father so he could help his friend alter the father's will. And in so doing, 
give himself some pretty choice possessions. If that's not bad enough, there's another sinner, also from Ovid, named Mira. She disguised herself as someone else so she could sleep with her own father. Almost immediately upon entering the scene, Gianni viciously bites Capocchio on the neck and drags him off. And we hear no more of Capocchio or of the, the people that Dante called the rabid pair. But the canto has really only just begun as Dante and Virgil are now introduced to a new kind of falsifier in the form of the counterfeiter, Master Adam. Now, Master Adam was a real person and he did make coins. His florins, however, were 21 karat gold and 3 karat dross instead of the 24 karat gold that was required. For this crime, he was burned at the stake. And Dante may even have witnessed this event in his adolescence. You'll notice Master Adam's contrapasso is exactly matched to his crime. In the same way he inflated the value of his coins, making them worthless for spending, here his body is inflated by dropsy, making it worthless for movement. His body is also a reflection of his tendency to falsification. He is so misshapen that Dante describes his body as looking like a lute. But later, when he's punched, he doesn't sound like a lute. We're told he sounds like a drum, another counterfeit. Finally, like his namesake, the first Adam, and like so many other sinners in hell, he gives a long justification about his sin. It's totally not his fault. Others made him do it. And if he could only get his hands on them, well. It's important to picture this scene. Otherwise, it's easy to get pulled into his strong words and forget that he's completely stuck in place, flailing on the ground in his anger. Equally stuck are the sinners near him, the fever-stricken falsifiers of the truth, the liars, Pontif Pontifer's wife from the book of Genesis, who lied about Joseph's supposed seduction of her, which lands him in jail, and Sinon, whose lies about the Trojan horse led to the destruction of Troy. And this is where I think the most important part of the canto begins. Master Adam and Sinon begin to bicker. It is trash talk at its finest. It is East Coast versus West Coast rap battle. It is the worst kind of internet flame war. But again, beyond the odd slapping back and forth, these two men, Master Adam and Sinon, are stuck in place on the ground as they spew their invectives. Picturing this reminds us how ridiculous, almost comical they are. Now, in his days as a younger poet in Florence, Dante wasn't above such things himself. He exchanged sonnets or tenzone with other poets that are all about landing the most potent poetic punch. Critic Fabian Alfie calls these poems examples of Dante the Insulter, and he was quite good at them. So perhaps it's not surprising that Dante gets sucked into this incredible throwdown between Master Adam and Sinon. But while Ovid may begin the chapter, Virgil, who has been silent throughout this whole canto, finally speaks up. Virgil had already started Canto 29 by correcting Dante's absorption in the spectacle of Bertrand de Born. Why do your eyes insist on drowning there below among those wretched, broken shades? Now, in the very next canto, he's even more forceful. 
Keep right on looking, and I shall lose my patience. But Dante's fascination with the futile wrangling is really all of our tendencies to love getting pulled into observing petty arguments. It's the drama at work, the gossip we don't really mind hearing at church. It's why we read the comments online, even when we know we shouldn't. It's why we keep following that ugly Twitter thread. At Virgil's words, Dante is deeply ashamed and contrite, and Virgil reassures him. But he also provides the most important lesson in the canto's final line. Quote, the wish to hear such baseness is degrading. The wish to hear such baseness is degrading. In other words, it's less about the awfulness of the sinners engaged in this kind of behavior and more about the way that interacting with that awfulness diminishes us. And that's a universal lesson. I started by saying this canto also speaks to Dante's own particular journey. In the critical technique called vertical reading, readers compare the poem across the same number. As you keep reading, here's something to continue to track. Master Adam's last taunt refers to Narcissus, a figure from Greek mythology who is attracted only to his own reflection. He's in love with himself. And there's a reference to Narcissus in each of the number 30 cantos. Interesting. I want to suggest to you that this Narcissus figure is tied to Dante learning to use his great gifts as a poet, not for himself, not to compete with Ovid and the rest, but for God. Here in Inferno 30, he's reminded of a time when he himself used his poetic gifts to battle and belittle. He's reminded of, of how easily he gets sucked into these language battles, of how distracted he can be by one-upmanship and verbal retorts, and he knows it has had a degrading effect on him. The use of his gifts will come up again in Purgatorio 30 when Beatrice evaluates how he used his gifts after her death. Spoiler alert, not well. And by Paradiso 30, Dante himself will acknowledge that even his greatest poetic language can't begin to describe the plenitude the wonder of God. While Dante's done his best to create, his language fails. He can only hope that poetry can help us be more faithful to the God who is the ultimate author. By this point in Inferno, we should no longer be surprised at the depravity of sinners. They are who they are. What is important is our response. Will we be degraded by our attraction to such things? Dante's shame shows he's making progress on his journey. It also encourages us that there's hope for us as well. Thank you for reading Dante's Divine Comedy with us. Continue the journey at 100daysofdante.com. 100 Days of Dante is brought to you by the Baylor University Honors College with support from the Torrey Honors College at Biola University, the Templeton Honors College at Eastern University, the University of Dallas, Whitworth University, and Gonzaga University in Florence.